2006, Marilyn and I traveled to Rome. Well, actually, we traveled to Italy. And what an amazing experience that was. We started out in Venice. By the way, I think George Clooney just got married in Venice. <laughs> or I don't know if it's happened yet, but it's already happened. Okay. They, I saw a clip on it. They stayed at the best hotel there in Venice. Well, when we were in Venice, we stayed at a pretty nice hotel, too. Not as good as theirs, probably, but, but it was nice. And Venice is an enchanting and wonderful place. Italy, the whole country, is, is, is wonderful. We made our way from Venice to Florence, and we got to see David, he, all 18 feet of him. Extraordinary sculpture. I think it's the best sculpture in the world, Michelangelo's work. The hands are just so amazing. They're just so real and strong. And So Marilyn and I, we went to the academia there, and we literally circled around David for probably about an hour. We just couldn't get away from him. If you ever get a chance, they say that his ankles might have little fractures in them, and so they might have to move him. They certainly don't want him to collapse, but I don't know if that's for sure or not. Then we made our way down to Rome, and I was wondering about Rome because I knew it's a big city, several million. I was surprised by the romance of Rome. It was very romantic and a, a beautiful city, and there's so much to see there. Of course, we went to the Vatican, the Sistine Chapel. You see the creation scene on the ceiling and then the judgment in Revelation on the, on the wall. Once again, it's Michelangelo's work. I remember when we were in there, they speak in Italian, they say, hush, hush, you know, no talking. And that then two minutes later, everybody's, everybody's talking, and then no flash photography, and then tush, 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 tush. it's all going off, you know. <laughs> so just like they, they got mad at us because we were put our feet in the Trevi Fountain. But we weren't the only people doing it. It was hot that day. We didn't know. We were Americans, you know. And then the police came around, and of course, they didn't really mess with Americans, but they were more going after the Italians. But we realized we better get our feet out of the Trevi Fountain because I guess, Marilyn, you can drink from that, right? That's a water source. So that makes sense. Rome is called the Eternal City. It's interesting that the Roman Empire existed over two millennia, 2,500 years, or 25,000 years, or 2,500 years, Rome existed. And in a sense, it still exists today. The city is still there. And Daniel, in his prophecy, he spoke 500 years before the birth of Christ. He predicted that in the end times, this, this Roman Empire, which was represented in this statue that he saw of iron, which iron represents strength, military strength and power and might. You know, Rome ruled with a fist of iron. And they dominated their enemies quite well. And they also intimidated them through force. So he predicted that this Roman Empire which came on the scene, would be revised in the last days. That Rome would arise again. Out of this Roman Empire would come a man. The Bible calls him the Antichrist, against Christ. But a human being. And he would become a world leader. And he would bring peace upon the world at first. But he is a man of deception, but also will be able to work supernatural powers or miracles like Christ. But he is of the evil one, right? And ultimately, he would be defeated. But Daniel spoke of this person coming out of this revised Roman Empire. Now, John Lennon, <laughs> to quote John Lennon, he said, New York is Rome. Now, is he, was he right? I mean, he's gone now. He was, he was killed. But the thought occurred to me how there's some real similarities to the United States and Rome. You know, we are the leader of the Western world. We are the greatest nation in the world still today. We've been that way for quite a while. And the Romans always thought they would exist forever. You know, actually, Rome crumbled on the inside. And I think there's a perception in America that we'll always be here. We're the best. We're the land of the free. I mean, we are. And, and we are the leader of the Western world. 
And we have the greatest military power, and we're a democracy, the land of the free, and there's a, a thought, a perception sometimes that we'll always be here. But God says nations are like a drop in the bucket to him. They, they rise up and they go down. And what will happen to the United States in these last days I believe we're living in, who knows? But I do believe there's some real similarities to Rome and the U.S. Well, the reason I'm bringing up Rome is Paul, in the 25th chapter, appealed to the governor to go to Rome. He appealed to stand before Caesar. Now, we were talking about Caesars, <laughs> Caesar salad. <laughs> Probably the best-known Caesar is Julius Caesar, and I'm sure you guys have read the, the story about him. There were many Caesars. Caesar is really a title. It stands for an emperor or ruler, right? Rome began more as a republic, and that as time went on, these Caesars began to arise. The first one was Augustus. So sometimes they referred to Caesars as Augustus because that was the first one. He was the first one. And they were pretty much ruthless. And they were almost worshipped like a god in many ways. That's how prominent they were. So it would make sense that the Antichrist would come up out of this kind of regime, a revised Roman Empire. So these emperors would come and go, but they would continue to down through history. During the time of Jesus, during the time of his birth, one of the Caesars is mentioned. But Rome itself has existed for such a long time, and Paul here is in the midst of all of this, appealing to go to Rome and to stand before Caesar and defend himself and defend his case. Because he's being falsely accused here by the Jews. And remember, for the Jews were continually persecuting Christians, or what we call the way, when Christianity began, when it was birthed on Pentecost, almost immediately the Jewish community began to attack it and go after it. And they opposed it, this, this sect that they called. I mean, they are the ones that crucified Jesus. Of course, the Romans were involved as well. And in a sense, we've all crucified Christ, right? Because all of us are, are guilty before God. None are, none are righteous. There's none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. That's the good news, right? So yes, we've all sinned, but there's redemption in Christ. There's forgiveness in Christ. And probably what people need more than anything else is forgiveness of sins. To remove the guilt in their life. There are a lot of people that sit in mental institutions because their life is consumed by guilt. And they've condemned themselves. They feel condemned by their errors, by their mistakes in life, right? But Jesus forgives us, amen? We're going to talk about this a little bit later. But there's forgiveness in Christ. There's freedom in Christ. God said, I'll remember your sins no more. I've buried them in the depths of the sea to be remembered no more. I've separated them as far as the east is from the west. And if you travel west, I don't care how far west you go, you'll never go east. <laughs> and if you go east as far as you want, you'll never go west. That's how far our sins have been separated from us, amen? Now, if you go north, eventually you're going to be going south, right? And vice versa. But the Bible says east from the west, right? Pretty amazing. So Paul is appealing in this 25th chapter. Remember, Paul is a Roman citizen born in Tarsus. He was trained as a Pharisee under Gamaliel, the rabbi, the famous rabbi who existed during this time and was a religious leader. And like I said, a Pharisee totally knowledgeable in the way of Judaism, in the way of the Old Testament scriptures. And he even said, I'm blameless. 
I'm such a good religious person. I keep this law so much that I am blameless. You can't put blame against me. Now, there are some people that kind of act that way in their life. You know, I don't do anything wrong. Everything I do is good. But the thing is, God looks at the motives of people's hearts. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God's looking at the heart of us. And it's in the heart is where real evil arises. That's what Jesus said. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth will speak. And out of that heart comes good things and bad things. And so God is examining the heart of man. And so Paul may have looked good religiously on the outward, but he, he still was corrupt before God. He was still sinful before God because his heart wasn't perfect. He had to have a change of heart, right? But he saw himself as that way. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that in a minute. But here we see that in the first verse of chapter 25, we have a new governor that arose. The first one was Felix. You know, I told you last week, it's kind of funny, these names. I always think of Felix the cat. You guys probably don't even know that. There was an old cartoon way, way back. I think it started out black and white. It was called Felix the cat. It was about Felix the cat. (laughs) Then I think they may have colorized it. Who remembers that? Felix the cat. Okay. Now, to make things even more funny... So Felix, after two years, departs, right? He left Paul imprisoned in Caesarea, which is just north of Jerusalem. Beautiful city, I'm told, right on the water. It it was the Roman stronghold right there. And so he left him in kind of under a house arrest to really protect him from the Jews because there was a plot that 40 guys had vowed we're going to kill Paul. We hate this man so much and this way, this Christian message he's preaching, we're going to kill him. They were bent on it. I mean, they were violent in their expression towards Christianity. So I think Felix was rather weak. He couldn't make a decision on Paul. He couldn't decide of his, uh, whether he was innocent or guilty. But he really didn't find anything that Paul had done that was wrong. There was another man that did no wrong. His name was Jesus, right? And they convicted him of blasphemy against God. And yet Christ was without sin. And he was convicted and murdered in Jerusalem at the skull, the hill of the skull, Golgotha. And there he was crucified. Paul here is being attacked as well. Felix is weak. He doesn't know what to do with him. So he leaves him under house arrest for two years now. Paul is now the prisoner to Rome. And even though he's a Roman, he's still a prisoner. Felix leaves and a new governor comes in. Stronger governor, better governor. His name is Festus, which I find another funny name. Because if you ever watch the series Gunsmoke, did anybody ever see that? The deputy's name was Festus. <laughs> I used to watch that a lot because my dad loved, he liked all those westerns, you know, spaghetti westerns and Clint Eastwood and all that. But the, the funny thing about Festus on Gunsmoke is he was this kind of goofy guy. He, he looked kind of goofy. He had this big 10-gallon hat. He reminds me of Barney on, uh, was that his name? On Mayberry RFD, yeah. He kind of reminded me of that deputy. Who was that? Don Knotts, yeah. You guys have seen that, haven't you? Old reruns? Anyway. No, we haven't seen that. Anyway, so we go from Felix to Festus. Kind of funny to me, but these names are rather festive. But, but anyway, Festus, when he comes on the scene, he's a much better governor. Keep in mind, these guys are Romans, okay? And he's, he's the governor of Palestine in that area where, where the Jews were. So immediately he goes to Jerusalem because he wants to make contact with the Sanhedrin. That's, those, that's the religious group there, Pharisees, Sadducees, and the priests. And he's smart because he realizes that he's, he's got to consolidate his relationship with them and, and develop a relationship with them in order to keep the peace. 
because he, he knows the power of these Jewish religious leaders and what they're capable of doing. So he comes in and makes relationship with them. And immediately, these guys are like, well, we want to talk about Paul. So, you know, they, these guys were relentless, and they were full of envy and full of revenge. That's not a good way to live in life, by the way. Where there is jealousy and envy, there is confusion in every evil thing. And I've seen this in the church. People come into the church with wrong motives. They become envious for whatever reason, jealous. And then they create a spirit of confusion in the church, a spirit of division, because their motives are not of God. They're, they're trying to divide the church, divide the flock. One of the seven things God hates is division among the brethren. God wants unity in our lives. We can agree to disagree, but we still need to be unified in our relationship in Christ. Amen? So the Jews say, we want him. And so they said, bring him down to Jerusalem. Now, remember, he's been in jail for two years. And they had a wrong motive. They were going to clip him off on the way home. As they were bringing him down, they were going to try to assassinate him on the road. Well, of course, Festus doesn't realize this, but he says, no, I don't feel that's the right thing to do. You guys come to Caesarea. You come to our headquarters and make your case before me. And so they come, and as we read in chapter 25 in the first part of the, there, we see them coming in. Let's look a little bit of what they, what they said. And verse 7, when he had come, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem, remember they always say come down, because in the Bible, Jerusalem is up on high, right? So and everything is down from Jerusalem. But actually, they were going north, so it would be more like up. But anyway, that's just a little side note. And when he had come, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood about and laid many serious complaints against Paul, which they could not prove. It's interesting, they could not prove. While he answered for himself, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I offended in anything at all. So Paul's saying, I haven't, I haven't offended anybody. But Festus, wanting to do the Jews a favor, answered, and Paul said, are you willing to go to Jerusalem and there be judged before me concerning these things? So now he's going to say, Paul, you want to defend yourself? Let's go back to Jerusalem. Let's stand trial. You stand trial in their religious court, and we'll see what the verdict is. Paul's a, he's smart. He realizes if he goes back to Jerusalem, he's going to die. There had already been prophecies that the fact that Paul would, would die in Jerusalem if he didn't leave. Even Jesus warned him to get out. So he knew that that was a death sentence for him. And yet he felt compelled that his life was not over. He still had purpose in his life. You see, the most important thing in life, one of the most important things is that you have purpose. That there's something that drives you in your life. Uh, a calling, if you will. But whatever it might be, that purpose enables you, strengthens you, energizes you in your life, right? People that are apathetic and, you know, have no purpose in life become depressed and become downtrodden by life. But when you still are driven with a purpose and you find meaning in your life, that's where you're going to feel the, get the most out of life, really. So that could be through a vocation, but it doesn't have to be through a vocation, right? Different reasons. Christians should all have purpose. Jesus said, I came that you might have life and that you might have it to the fullest extent. So God wants to give us fullness of life, right? And we find that in Jesus. Paul says, so look at verse we already read it, but let's read it again, verse 10. So Paul said, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged. To the Jews, I have done no wrong, as you very well know. 
So he says, I haven't done anything to the Jews. I'm a Jew myself. And I understand these people. And I was like them. But I, I was converted. I was changed. I met Jesus on the road to Damascus, the risen Christ, the one that you crucified. And he came back to life after three days and rose from the dead. And I have relationship with him. I know him now. And he's my God and Savior. And I worship him. And I follow him. But I still believe in the Old Testament scriptures. And I still believe it's the same God of the Old Testament. Yahweh, Jehovah. But he manifests himself in the form of his son, Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Christ became flesh, became human. The son of God. So here's where Paul says, look, I haven't done anything to these Jews. I appeal to Rome. I appeal to Caesar. And what does the governor say? What does Festus say? You've appealed to Caesar. To Caesar, you shall go. (laughs) Make a good movie, huh? But that's it. So now, in this providential circumstance, God works through providence. He our life, many times there's circumstances that happen in our life that we don't, we have no control over. But God, through providence, works out situations in our life for our purpose and for our, our benefit. Amen? And the interesting thing about Paul is that all of these circumstances would happen, this providence that was occurring in his life, would bring him against, or bring him in contact with prominent people. So the circumstances were all working out according to God's will to bring him to cross paths with these very prominent people. So here's a guy who's just a Jewish guy, you know, he's been converted to Christianity. He's not even a Pharisee anymore. He's a nobody. But now he's come in contact with two governors of Rome, and he's going to go to Rome itself and come in contact with Caesar, the emperor. God is in control of all things. And in your life, my life, he brings people across our paths through circumstances that we're supposed to meet, that we're supposed to have contact with, have influence upon, or those that might have influence upon us. And so all things work together for good to those who love God and are the called according to his purpose. So sometimes God does supernatural, miraculous things in our life, and then other times he just works out circumstances. That's still miraculous, but we, we don't see it sometimes as the hand of God working in our life. And so the places you've gone in life, the schools you've attended, the people that you've known, you know, the places that you've gone. As a Christian, as a believer, God's hand was in those things, right? I told Kylie, our youngest, I said, because she's been praying about her future, what's she going to do in her, with her life? And all of a sudden it came to me, I said, God will not mislead you. And I heard the Lord say, Scott, dummy, that's you. You think sometimes God has misled you. Or I have misled you, the Lord would say. But God doesn't do that. He's not going to lead you to a place and not be accordance to what he wants, right? So if you're a believer and you're his child, he won't mislead you. So you don't have to worry about it. Well, boy, I think I made a mistake. I think I, think I did the wrong thing. I think I'm in the wrong place, you know? But God is greater than our mistakes in our decisions, Right? And if he doesn't want you in a certain place, you won't get there. (laughs) And, you know, the disciples were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to to not go into Asia. Remember in the book of Acts. So when God opens a door, you go through it, right? 
And the Lord said in the book of Revelation of the church of Philadelphia, I've opened a door that no man can shut. So God opens and shuts doors. And so I believe God has opened a door of ministry for us here at Lighthouse in Laguna Niguel, even though we don't have a lot of people right now. But the door is open and no one can shut it. And God has opened the door of ministry for us to be here. So when you're questioning sometimes your life, am I doing the right thing or did I make the right decisions? Trust that the Lord's hand has led you to where you are and where you're going too. Amen? Praise God. All right, very quickly. Paul says, I've done no wrong. Now, earlier Paul said, I've done no wrong to anyone. Now, in a sense, you'd say that's lying because Paul was a persecutor of Christians. When he was converted, he was on his way to go arrest Christians in Damascus and take them to Jerusalem and have them incarcerated and possibly killed. The clothes of the men killing Stephen were laid at the feet of a young man named Saul who later became Paul. So he witnessed the first martyrdom, the first Christian martyr. Stephen was stoned to death. And he looked up and he saw heaven open. He saw the Son of Man, Jesus, standing at the right hand of God. The first martyr. But Paul was there. Now you say, well, then how can you say I've done harm to no one? Well, if you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, it says, Therefore, if any person be in Christ, they're a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things are brand new. When I got saved on a balmy night in Palm Springs, California at age 14, I felt like a new person. I didn't know about this scripture. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, they're a new creation. But that's exactly what the revelation came to me is that I'm new. That old Scott's gone. I'm a new person. I have a new nature. And I remember when I asked Christ to come into my life, I felt like I had been washed on the inside, been cleansed on the inside. And I felt brand new, just according to the scripture. There was a man named Nicodemus who came to Jesus by night. He was a religious leader. I believe later he was converted. But he said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher that's come from God because nobody can do these miraculous works unless they be of God. And Jesus was a straight shooter, and he went right to the point, and he said, you must be born again. And Nicodemus goes, scratched his head, what do you mean born again? How, what, am I supposed to go back into my mother's womb and come out the second time? This guy was kind of thick, I mean, but that's what he said. And, and Jesus said, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. You must be born again. You must be born of the spirit. You must have a spiritual birth. All of us were dead in our trespasses and before we came to Christ. And then God raised us up. And we became new in him. We became born again or born from above. Some people make fun of that, you know, the born again Christian. Oh, born again Christian. You know. But it's a reality in the word of God, in the gospel of John that Jesus said. You don't know where the wind is going or where it's coming from. You can feel the effects of the wind, but you can't really predict which way it's going to go because it can change direction rapidly. So it is those that are born of the Spirit. It's hard to explain to someone. So a lot of people think going to church makes you a Christian or even carrying around a Bible or maybe quoting a Bible verse. That does not make you a Christian. You must be born again. You have to ask God through his son to come into your life to forgive your sins and receive him as your Lord and Savior. I did that on that balmy night at age 14. And I was forever changed. And then soon after that, I got a call to the ministry. So it's a real experience. We are not becoming religious. Remember, lighthouse, no religion, just life. That's our motto. It's true. We're not trying to make people religious. We're trying to give them life. 
not life from us, life from him. But as many as received him, John 1.12, to them gave you the right, the power, the privilege to become children of God. All you have to do is receive Christ in your life. Amen? That's it. By grace are you saved through faith, not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, not of what you do, but according to his grace. Amen? And grace is unmerited favor. God says, I favor you and I love you and I'm going to continually favor you in your life. You didn't do anything. You didn't work for it. You didn't earn it. I'm just going to pour out favor in your life. Isn't that the greatest kind of friend to have, though? Someone that's always on, got your back and always behind you and always believing in you and not condemning you, you know? God doesn't condemn us. He's forgiven us. He's just asking us to receive. Well, very quickly, Paul now has made his appeal. And in comes King Agrippa in verse number 13. Now he's got contact with the king. <laughs> the king comes in with his, his sister, who's more than his sister, okay? His sister was widowed. And so now he's taken on his sister as kind of like his wife. So they, they, were, they, talk, they were talking about that in Rome, you know, because that's kind of a scandal. But anyway, and so, and they come in all their pomp and circumstance, but royalty. They have all their royal garments on and all that. And the governor, Festus, says, uh, I've got this prisoner here named Paul. I, I don't know yet what to do with him. And long story short, Agrippa says, uh, I will hear him. I want to hear his story. So all of a sudden, this King Agrippa is interested. I want, I want to know about this, Paul. I want to know who he is, and I want to know what he's done or hasn't done. And so we're going to see next week in chapter 26, Paul's defense before King Agrippa.